This is a Radio.com original. This is Coronavirus Daily World on Pause. I'm Charles Feldman from the KNXRadio.com studios in Los Angeles. And I'm Mike Simpson. And we're here to talk about the coronavirus pandemic. Some concerns growing about the vaccine trials. Some participants reporting side effects like aches and fevers. Is this just all part of the process or signs that things aren't going too well? More and more people are headed back to work. Businesses are starting to open their offices again. But are we rushing things, or is now the time to get back to as much normal as we can? During the pandemic, other health crises have taken a back seat. One in particular, fight against opioid addiction, has come to a halt in a lot of parts of the country, leading to a surge in opioid-related deaths. Entertainment executives, big-name directors, and other Hollywood insiders are making a desperate plea to save movie theaters all across the country. Now, there's a joint effort to demand a bailout from the federal government to save movie theaters, many of which may not survive the pandemic. And pandemic nightmares, they're real. Suite of new studies shows people across the world dreaming about COVID, whether it's about distancing or even catching the virus. And while maybe you have anxiety about these dreams, the nightmares may not be entirely bad for us. Some participants in the Moderna and Pfizer vaccine trials are reporting side effects like fevers, body aches, chills, exhaustion. And this comes as Reuters is reporting that the FDA has broadened its investigation of a serious illness in AstraZeneca vaccine study. But are these major steps backwards? Dr. Peter Katona, clinical professor of medicine, infectious diseases, UCLA's Geffen School of Medicine. So, doctor, two separate uh, scenarios here. What do you make of what we're seeing? There's certainly differences between a complicated, difficult side effect like the transverse myelitis seen in the AstraZeneca vaccine and mild symptoms that we see with things like Zoster vaccine. But I would caution because When we are doing trials, we shouldn't be talking about this. Some patients will get the vaccine, some will get nothing as a control, and we should leave the study go and let it come to its end before we start dealing with these things, because we don't even know which of them were controls, which of them were actually receiving the vaccine in the first place. Well, maybe we shouldn't talk about it, but it's out there now, so we're kind of stuck having to, <laughs> I'm afraid, having to talk about it. And 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 one of the, the problems, and I've mentioned this on, on the show, I don't mention uh, and won't which trial, but I'm in one of the trials, and I didn't get any real uh, reaction, so I don't know what the heck I got. But I know that some people and some younger people have gotten some reactions, like fevers, things like that. And that could be an issue, could it not? Because in order to sell younger people on being vaccinated, it might be a harder sell if some of the side effects might be, although maybe temporary, if they're you know, fever, chills, that sort of thing. And many young people, if not most, are either asymptomatic or get very little in terms of symptoms from the disease. That may make it a hard sell to get them vaccinated. It's a very valid point, and it's equivalent to flu vaccine. There's a lot of people in that same boat who will or will not get flu vaccine for the same reasons. They feel that they're healthy anyway. They might have had a reaction in the past. So it's analogous to that. But I think that our evolving attitudes about vaccine, right now, three-quarters of the population is somewhat skeptical about vaccine. But I think that will change. It will change according to what happens when we start giving it in large numbers to people. It will also change according to what's actually happening with the outbreak at that particular time. Obviously, we'll see what the numbers look like as we move on forward and things can change. And, and we heard your caution uh, just a minute ago. But what are the odds that maybe the first dose 
if it's a two-doser, that the first dose is no big deal, and then the second one is the one that, that you know, puts you down for the day, and you're going to take a nap, and then you'll go to work tomorrow. Well, that's been reported by these anecdotal reports that have come out in the press. So, yes, it could happen on the first dose. The first dose could sensitize you a little bit so that you get a bigger reaction the second dose. Uh, we had a big problem with teng- dengue vaccine acting as, as, a, as a second dose of a dengue strain, giving you terrible complications. So we are concerned about the second dose, and it'd be ideal to have a one-dose vaccine like the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, if possible. Well, and, and, that, and that kind of brings us to the question that, and we've raised it with others uh, on the show as, as well. I, I mean, we all kind of talk, and maybe it's, I don't know, maybe a lot of it is just uh, well-founded, but nonetheless wishful thinking. We all kind of talk about when there's going to be a vaccine. Uh, but really, it's an if, isn't it? Because... None of these vaccines, none of the ones that are in phase three trials now, do we know for sure work? That's true. We don't. And we don't know how long the immunity will last. And we haven't tested it enough people to find something that may be a significant side effect. So that there's a lot of unknowns. You know, the good news is that we have a half a dozen vaccines that are all in phase three trials. And maybe one of them will be good enough that we will evade these issues. Dr. Peter Katona, Clinical Professor of Medicine, Infectious Diseases, UCLA's Geffen School of Medicine. If you've had to work in the office, store, or construction site through this pandemic, like us, you may have noticed your commute to and from work is getting just a little longer and just a little more congested. It's because more people are going back to work. Offices are starting to open across Southern California, for example, and elsewhere. But are businesses rushing to open too quickly? Or is this necessary now? Because working from home just isn't cutting it in some spots. With us is Andy Challenger, Senior Vice President at the outplacement firm Challenger, Gray and Christmas. So, Andy, we understand why some people want to go back. But are businesses doing what needs to be done to make sure that those who do go back are going to be safe? Yeah, I do think most companies are uh, putting quite a bit of time and effort around making sure their workplaces are are safe for people. They've had a long time to prepare, right? In in the beginning of the crisis, when uh, uh, businesses hadn't shut all the way down yet, and they were kind of putting in these safety measures ad hoc, uh, uh, just trying to respond to the crisis, I think things were a little bit more scattered and there wasn't good information. But now, six, seven months into it, companies have had time to put together a really good strategy. What do we know about who's going back and who isn't? I imagine if you've got like a sales floor or something, then you can probably do this from home and do a bunch of Zoom meetings. That's what, you know, we're doing. But if you're one of the creative types, um, you know, you influencer companies and social media, they all want to be together so they can do that creative juices are flowing thing, whether that works or not. They think that they've got to all be in the room together. Yeah, I think it's, it's kind of company by company right now. Uh, certainly some organizations have realized that many of the roles in their company can be done remotely pretty darn effectively, possibly permanently, uh, but other roles in their organization need people uh, to come together. And, and, and there's also just the individual preferences of workers. Not each person is the same and their household situations aren't all equivalent. So, so, so some Uh, People are having a hard time uh, when they have to uh, educate their kids and take care of their dogs and there's chores to be done, have a much harder time being productive and they uh, appreciate the ability to go back into the office while others are much more comfortable working at home. What 
kinds of things do companies need to do? I mean, some of the stuff, it seems to me, is pretty easy. You know, they stock up on disinfectants and wipes and things like that to clean surfaces. Some of the stuff, though, is going to require an investment of a lot of money, changing and upgrading air filtration systems, redesigning office space so that people aren't in as much contact. I mean, I, I can imagine some companies are going to go, whoa, that's a lot of money. We're not going to spend that. Yeah, I think you're certainly seeing some companies say the cost uh, of rebuilding our workspace, especially if we've gone with the trend of the last few years of being more and more uh, open office spaces with uh, many people sharing the same uh, uh, table or uh, hoteling is a term you hear a lot where you kind of have a cubby to keep your your uh, things and, and you pick a new space each day. Uh, companies are, are flocking away from uh, real estate in general, as they, they found people can be pretty darn productive at home. Do you think even post-vaccine, there's going to be more of a rotation strategy? And it's not just, you know, oh, I take half days on Fridays, or maybe I work from home Fridays, but maybe it's like three days a week you go in and two, you, you don't, you stay home at more places. Yeah, I think that's, uh, that kind of hybrid model is where more companies are headed in the the medium to long term, uh, even as they start to feel like it's safe for people to come into the office. Uh, Now they're responding in some ways to the needs of of their workers uh, uh, who have uh, really shown over the last six months that they can be productive and that they'd like a little bit more autonomy instead of being nine to five every single weekday uh, in the office and that they can choose their own schedule and still be effective. And I think you're starting to see companies really prepared to respond to that. Andy Challenger, Senior Vice President, the outplacement firm Challenger Gray and Christmas. 2020 is the year the coronavirus pandemic spread around the world and steamrolled everything else we were trying to do. Before coronavirus in the U.S., one of the biggest health emergencies was the opioid epidemic. And while COVID-19 became the number one priority, the opioid crisis continues to have a devastating impact. Dr. Anand Parekh, chief medical advisor at the Bipartisan Policy Center, spoke with KYW's Matt Leon about how the country is funding the fight against the opioid epidemic and where it's hitting the hardest. Well, you know, we're in the midst of a COVID-19 pandemic, but it's important that, that people remember that we're also in the midst of an opioid use disorder epidemic claiming 50,000 American lives each year. So they're focused on fiscal year 2019 and found 60 different individual funding streams totaling $7.6 billion. Now three quarters of these dollars are going to treatment, prevention, and recovery. Uh, Some of these dollars are also going to interdiction, which is important because illicit fentanyl continues to drive the epidemic. Uh, We found that polysubstance use is increasing. That means it's just not opioids, but meth and cocaine altogether. We also found increasing rates of overdose deaths in communities of color. So it paints a picture that this is still a very, very important public health challenge, and we need constant vigilance. All that money, did you find for the most part it was going where it should go as far as where the the greatest problem is in this situation? It did appear that the majority of the dollars are flowing to counties experiencing the, the highest number of overdose deaths, of course, within that county. The question to ask is at-risk populations, are they getting the help they need? For example, individuals who are incarcerated, who are coming uh, out, uh, so the re-entry time, uh, pregnant women, um, uh, uh, new mothers, 
Are they getting the help they need? Injection drug users, are they getting access to syringe exchange programs, which facilitate treatment and, and don't increase drug use? So I think there are open questions with respect to at-risk uh, uh, populations. Uh, but I think the crux of the study is that overall, the best data suggests that the need is outstripping uh, the supply in that uh, really only a minority of individuals with opioid use disorder have access to medication-assisted treatment, which is really the gold standard treatment. We need to do better there. What are your recommendations to do better? How do we, I don't want to say fix, because it seems like we're kind of getting 60% to the finish line. How do we take it all the way to the end zone? Yeah, sure. So I think there are three areas of focus in terms of the federal government being a better partner to states like uh, Pennsylvania. Uh, the first is sustainable funding. Uh, as I mentioned, the need right now is greater uh, than the supply. Um, and we also need to make, make sure existing funding streams are effective and are evidence-based. Uh, we need to make sure that they also include communities of color, which I mentioned that's a, that those are communities where there are increasing rates uh, of, of overdose of mortality. Uh, again, the focus on at-risk populations is critical. Uh, and then third, there are many rules and regulations at the federal level uh, that, that really pose a burden on increasing access to treatment. So for example, during COVID-19, it's been very helpful to use telemedicine to initiate buprenorphine treatment. It's been helpful that uh, you can get take-home doses of methadone from opioid treatment facilities. Uh, um, those ought to be extended. However, there are other regulations such as onerous burdens on healthcare professionals just to prescribe buprenorphine or medication-assisted treatment. There are patient caps on how many patients you can treat. We need to revisit um, and eliminate a lot of these barriers. Um, state Medicaid programs like in, in Pennsylvania also need to reduce barriers. There, ought, there should not be prior authorizations, for example, um, to access treatment. So there are a lot of things that the federal government can still do to better support states and localities as they tackle the epidemic. Imagine a big blockbuster movie like Star Wars or The Avengers. Yeah. The kind you need to see on the big screen while you're sitting there with a giant tub of popcorn. Yeah. You're stuffing your mouth. This is great. You're crunching. And you're, you're drinking your soda. And, and on the big screen, all this action is taking place. But what if you had to just watch it at home instead? Oh. Yeah, it would be kind of a drag, wouldn't it? It's not as fun. Not as fun. Uh, and it's more of a reality, unfortunately, thanks to the uh, pandemic. Some Hollywood movie groups have sent a letter to lawmakers in Washington asking for a bailout for movie theaters because they've been hit so hard, some could fold. To talk about the future of the industry in a post-pandemic world and uh, during the pandemic is Patrick Corcoran, Vice President, National Association of Theater Owners. So, Patrick, uh, how much longer can some of these theaters hold out if nobody's in those seats? It's hard to say. And it's going to vary from company to company. You know, some will have more access to credit or, or capital that they have in savings to, to be able to last longer. It really depends on the course of the pandemic. It depends how quickly each market can open. You know, still Los Angeles County is closed, and we have to wait on the numbers to get better there. New York State is closed, which includes New York City. So the two biggest markets in the country for movies are, are closed right now. Uh, and the markets that are open, theaters that have opened, are open at 25 or 50% capacity. And the studios are not really releasing big new movies, and that's the biggest element right now. You know, they, they need a lot of theaters to, to justify that expense. And it's also the thing that brings in audiences. 
So with all of those things being shut down and then partially reopened, and we don't know how long that's going to be. That's dependent on the course of the pandemic. Uh, like restaurants, like bars, like live music venues, we are sort of stuck in this in-between world where, you know, we've either had our revenue cut off or when we reopen, we're going to be at really limited revenues for the foreseeable future, which is why we've appealed to Congress not for a bailout, as, as you termed it earlier, but rather for help, and mostly in the form of loans, as, as in earlier programs that, you know, like the Payroll Protection Program, which didn't really fit companies and industries, <clears throat> excuse me, where you had no payroll. Everybody was laid off because you weren't open. So those didn't really meet the needs. And there's a lot of money that is unspent from things like the Main Street Loan Program. And we're asking that Congress look at that and look at those funds and allocate them to industries like movie theaters, like live venues, like restaurants and bars that are particularly and uniquely affected by the pandemic. Yeah, just because there's no way to keep them open the doors. Can the theaters that are open, if it is a quarter capacity, can they survive on that? Or is it just even if you can get some seats that you can go sit in, the movies aren't there to show they would fill up those seats? Right. A, a quarter capacity is really tough and not likely to be sustainable. The, the key is to get them open to show the health officials that Really, movie theaters are very low risk compared to a lot of other activities. There hasn't been a single case of COVID-19 traced to a movie theater anywhere in the world. And we have, you know, safety protocols in place uh, that we've put out across the country called uh, Cinema Safe, which calls for mandatory mask wearing for patrons and for staff, enhanced uh, ventilation and filtration, constant cleaning, distancing between seats, and, you know, distancing within the, the common areas. And with these things, I think we can operate safely and probably at higher capacity than the 25%, 50% is probably more likely. And as, as we get experience with this and as numbers go down, we can operate at higher capacities. But until we're at a certain level, the studios are, are, are not going to feel comfortable releasing those big movies audiences aren't going to pay attention. <laughs> you know, most people actually don't know that movie theaters are open, even if it's in areas where they are open, they don't know for the most part. And they're not aware of the safety protocols because they're not aware that movies are out because there aren't any big movies out. Right. So all those things have to fit together. And, and we and depend on the advertising. Not... Pat, but, <laughs> right. but let me ask you something. Uh, you, you took issue with the characterization of, of bailout, but let me explore that briefly with you because... Some of the loans under the, the first and who knows, maybe the only stimulus packages that were given out because of the pandemic did not require payback if certain conditions are met. Is that the kind of loans uh, that theater owners are looking for? In some cases, in some cases not. It's really going to depend on the structure of those loans. The ones where you know the requirements for forgivability had to do with a certain percentage of it going to payroll. And again, we had no payroll, so we didn't really. It wasn't really useful to most of our members. But most are looking for a loan. It's kind of a bridge to get them to that place where we could operate normally because this before the pandemic was a solid productive business was responsible our industry alone for about 150,000 jobs across the country uh really key to a lot of main street economies and bars and restaurants and other things around the movie theater you know it's it's malls are dependent on movie theaters for the foot traffic and when you have uh, you know we get a lot of calls from uh cities and towns where they're looking to redevelop an area get their main street back 
where it should be, and the first thing they want is a movie theater so they can attract other things. And it's just a key part of our communities and a key part of our economy. And for the economy to get back to where it should be so there won't be as much pain, there won't be as much unemployment, we need to spend it now so that we have an economy to come back to six months from now or eight, 12 months from now. Yeah, whenever it is. Patrick Corcoran, Vice President, National Association Theater Owners. Patrick, thanks. In this COVID-19 world, just about everything in our lives has been impacted, and that includes our subconscious mind. I didn't even know I had a subconscious mind. I don't want to know what mine is thinking most of the time. (laughs) A new study from Finland finds many people are regularly having dreams or nightmares about the coronavirus. Finnish researchers found among dreams from 4,000 people, more than half of the bad dreams were pandemic-related, like hugging someone who's not part of your household or not wearing your face mask among crowds of people. But the pandemic nightmares may not be necessarily bad. According to the researchers, these dreams may be the proof that our subconscious is learning the new rules of living, helping us cope with the changes in our behaviors and social norms. So that's nice. But when we were teasing this earlier and talking about it, you know, things that are coming up, uh, I was thinking like, okay, bad virus dream. There's something chasing me. It's a wolf, you know, in the yeah. forest, and it's scary because that's the pandemic. Hugging somebody. The Finns must have it easier. <laughs> I know, have you have you ever had a, a pandemic-related COVID-19 nightmare? I don't think so. No, I, I haven't. I think there's enough. It's enough I'm just of, living through the year every day. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, you know, it's, it's enough of a Bad enough. daytime waking nightmare. <laughs> right. You don't need to dream about yeah, it. Yeah, here we are. 2020, uh, zero stars would not recommend. Uh, listen to us on the Radio.com app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. We hope you're doing well and sleeping okay. And people in Finland, get therapy. We'll be right back.